0: And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee.
1: Thanks, Pip. Why don't you bow with me before we begin this morning? I'm gonna tie my shoot while I pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for making yourself available to us any day, at any time, at any point. Thank you for sending your spirit to live inside of us, to make us affectionate to the things of Christ, to change who we are as human beings from the very inside out. And as I pray all the time, Lord Jesus, that you would set me aside and that we would hear this morning only what it is that is of you and from you for your people. Pray that by your spirit, you would comfort those who need comfort, that you would change those who need to be changed, that you would convert those who need conversion. Thank you that your word is powerful to do all of these things. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for all people. We, your servants, are here now to hear from you. Be with us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Morning, to our Hope. My name is Ian. Most of you probably know who I am, but if not, hello. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. You probably already have your Bibles open, and so I'm going to skip that step. Um, so this... This triumphal entry, as it's called, this Passover Sunday message is, in particular, one that that is that is beyond my my intellect. We know that every every passage of scripture there's there's some that that whether it's a story, whether it's a lesson, whether it's a teaching, there's there's a part of it that we can apprehend. There's a part of it that we can that we can learn. There's a part of it where we can just read on the surface what it is that's right there, and and it's it's pretty easy. To understand, but also given the reality that this is the Word of God that was written by God the Spirit through the agency of of human beings. There's a depth here that we can never, that we can never, ever get to the bottom of. Praise God for that. In our finite minds, we will never understand everything that is here because we're dealing with the God of the entire cosmos who is triune in nature. He is, he is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet we believe that he exists in three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so because of the depths of this, what is revealed to us by him through scripture, we can understand as much as we possibly can get our minds around, but there is a depth to which we will never understand this side of heaven. And this story in particular is one that is deep very deep the depth of it you can you can you can you can sort of suspect just when you read it but there's also something that's just very clear on the surface and so because of the depth of this passage and because of its profound implications there's probably at least a hundred ways that you could come at this text Uh, and still there'd be another hundred more after that and so the way that i that i try to construct this sermon uh for this morning because I'm an uneducated skateboarder from Southeast Portland is to make it as simple as possible. And the first thing that I wanted to point out, I, I kind of, I broke it down into three sections in, in my mind. And it's not really a three-point sermon necessarily, but it at least, as we go through this, because I'm going to be doing a lot of jumping around. And so I at least want us to understand from the get-go where we're going and, and know that we are going someplace And so I want to point out what is obvious on the page. And what is the most obvious on the page is exactly what's not happening. It seems like something's happening. When you read this at face value, you could come to the conclusion that, oh, this is taking place. That's not taking place. The first thing I want to point out is what's not happening. And the second thing I want to point out is what actually is happening. And then we want to move into what that means for us. And so if you read this story, if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you're not familiar with the story of our Lord Jesus, if you're not Jesus, if you're not familiar with this, the story of the cross and of salvation, and you read you read this, the very first thing that jumps out at you is this seems like it's a coronation. This seems like Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he's being praised as the king thousands and thousands and thousands of people. This is Passover week. This is a, a feast in Jerusalem that was attended by some historians, Josephus in particular points out that there might have been somewhere between one and two million people at any given point in Jerusalem in the surrounding area. And Jesus is coming into the city and he's being hailed by people. It seems like a coronation. It seems like something very particular is happening. But where we're going with this is what is actually happening is far deeper. Far deeper than what it appears on the surface. But it seems like a coronation. They're praising him as king. They're actually singing psalms to him. This verse 9, it says that the crowd's going ahead of him. Everybody was, was screaming out, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's a quote from Psalms 118, verse 26. They're taking an Old Testament scripture and they're saying, this is that Messiah. This is that person, this Hosanna to the Son of David. That's an Old Testament scripture that's coming from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Everything here is connected to something else. None of this is random. And what these people are saying with their words is, we've been expecting you you are the one who fulfills this description, the second Samuel seven, one that is in the line of the son of David, Psalms 118, you are the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Their words are affirming that they have a certain idea about who Jesus is and they're saying yes, it is you, yes, it is him, the very actions that they're taking they 're laying down their garments before him as he comes in on this on this donkey it 's a sign of respect there 's this sign of submission where they 're literally taking clothes off their back and they 're laying them it 's sort of a red carpet, so to speak, as jesus comes through and it, and that is not a random act they didn 't just make that up on the spot in second Kings chapter nine. A guy by the name of of Jehu becomes king, and they do the same thing. This is the behavior that people do when they recognize and even respect and honor. Here is, here is royalty. This guy really is something. Here he is. Psalms 118, 2 Samuel 7, Hosanna, praise, red carpet. This is a king. This is a person of royalty. They cut off branches and they even leave palm branches before the donkey is. the donkey is walking through with Jesus on its back. And we're told from the other Gospel accounts, this, this story, by the way, is in all four Gospels. We will look at a few of them this morning. But in the other Gospel accounts, it says that they're waving the palm branches as he's coming through, and again, that's communicating something. There's a cultural application there that we may not see right on the surface, but this isn't the first time in Jerusalem's history that this has happened. Just a, a, brief, a brief moment, because I just wanna build this up to show us what's really transpiring here in Jewish history, many of you are probably familiar with what's been referred to as and be, has become known to be the Maccabean Revolt. It was a few hundred years before Jesus was on the scene, this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes came in and basically wanted to eviscerate Jewish culture. He wanted to eviscerate uh, everything about them, their religion, their, their cultural customs, their practices everything, and then, and then bring in Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, and there was a revolt. There was an uprising against the Syntiochus Epiphanes, and the revolt was successful. They won, this is where we get the celebration of Hanukkah to this day, and one of the key players in that was a dude named Judas Maccabeus. It's the Maccabean revolt, and upon that victory, Judas Maccabeus came into Jerusalem, and people waved the palm branches because it had been an achieved victory. This was a celebration. And so all of these things are at play. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and there's all of these elements. And what they're praising him for, what they're expecting him to be, the king that they think that he is is the king that's going to overthrow the Roman rule that they're under. Palestine in this time was under the Roman thumb of authority. They were being taxed wrongly. They were being treated wrongly, and these, and these Jewish people thought, here is the long-awaited Messiah to come who's going to save us from these terrestrial bullies, these people who are making our lives here and now miserable. So now that Jesus is here, our lives are going to be better. There's, there's, a, there's a real element of that here, and they, they have belief in him. They're, they're, they're crying out, Psalms 118. They're crying out, Second Samuel 7. They really believe that this is who Jesus is. They're treating him like a king. They think, here's the guy who's going to overthrow the Romans for us. They're laying down the garments. They're waving the palm branches, which means that they're even putting their hope and their trust in him to a certain extent because while they're waving the palm branches, which is a sign of victory, they're simultaneously crying out, Hosanna. And Hosanna, in our understanding today, it sort of has this connotation of like, hail the king, praise the king. You know, here is the king, Hosanna. Hosanna. But the word actually means, if you were gonna put a definition on it, you could, you could say that Hosanna basically means help. Save us now, like save us immediately. Hosanna, save us, we need your help. They, they're looking to Jesus as this political or military figure who's going to get them out of Roman bondage, but they so believe in it that they're already doing this sort of victory dance. They're waving these palm branches for this king Jesus, and he's, not only is he coming in on this, on this donkey, and they're doing all these things, but there's, there's a rich history here, because the Romans were no pushover, and so under, to understand what these people are thinking, we've got to go back a little bit in time, because th- this isn't just a hap- this isn't just a all of a sudden... This guy, Jesus, shows up on a donkey, and everybody is like, this is the guy. They've known who Jesus is for quite a while, and they know that the Romans are no pushovers, and if somebody is going to lead a revolt against the Romans, it's gotta be somebody with some fortitude and with some strength and with some power, and this is who they have been thinking of as Jesus for quite, some time most of you know i've been i've been teaching through the gospel of john for i think it's been a year and a half or better and the gospel of john hits on this hard so i'm gonna i'm gonna refer to john a fair bit just because it's in my it just i've got it memorized like the abcs but if uh if you can recall or if you remember in john chapter 6 we see this 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 Jesus has power, Jesus has authority, let's let's follow him. We don't know exactly what it means, but let's follow him. And it leads right into what's happening here in Matthew 21. In John chapter 6, Jesus goes to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He goes there to actually get away. He goes there to be alone. But it says in in verse 2 that the people followed him there. They actually went across the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee to meet him on on the eastern shore, which is known as... Uh, the Golan Heights, they meet him there. And it says in in chapter six, verse two of John that they went because of the miraculous powers that they saw that he had. They saw him perform miracles and they followed him to the other side of the sea of Galilee. And of course, once they got there, they saw another tremendous miracle. It's the the famous feeding of the 5,000, which is actually very poorly named because Matthew tells us that it was just 5,000 men. If you count women and children like you should, it's more, of, it's more, you consider how big a family was back there, a typical family, it's anywhere between 20 and 25,000 people that got to the eastern shore, the Golan Heights, and they were fed miraculously from a kid's sack lunch. Jesus just produced all of this food for these thousands and thousands of people. This is the king. It even says in that same chapter, in verse 14, that the people saw that this miracle had taken place, they understood that this miracle had happened, And they said, this is the prophet who was to come. And that's that's the prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 15. A prophet who is greater than Moses. A prophet who has the words of God in his very mouth. They they were expecting somebody like this. Here is our political overthrow right here. Look at what he can do. And it goes on in chapter 6 to say that at that very point, right then and there on the Golan Heights, they wanted to force him to become their king. And that's not what Jesus came to do, so he actually left. He left the area, he went up into the hills and he got away from that, because while he is very much a king, he is king of the cosmos, he's not interested in being a king of that land at that time and that place in the way that those people were expecting him to be, and so he left. He's a man of power, he has authority, he has supernatural ability, and people knew it. Even if they didn't know who he was, they knew that and maybe at the risk of beating the point too much, but he also had authority just in the way that he spoke. Remember in John seven, the people are sent, there's, there's soldiers that are sent to arrest Jesus. And you've gotta imagine these, these, these soldiers, you know, these, this delegation of people, these the hard calloused dudes go to get Jesus and bring him into the authorities, and they get to him in John seven, and they hear him teaching, they hear him preaching, And they turn on their heels and they go back the way that they came. And when they get to their bosses, their bosses ask, where is that Jesus? Why did you not bring him? And these hardened, callous dudes look at their bosses and they say, we couldn't do it. No man spoke like this man. Jesus had authority in the way that he spoke. He is God in the flesh. And even when people didn't understand that, they understood something about him. And at this point in the story, these people want Jesus to save them from their Roman Oppression, but he came to do so much more. He came to do far more than that. They wanted some surface-level respite that was, that was based or contingent on their circumstances, but he came to give a rock-solid, immutable grace and peace and love that lasted for eternity, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of Roman oppression or any other oppression. He came to bring them out of death and into life. And these people didn't see it. And so he comes in to Jerusalem on this donkey. And it looks as if people are going to just try to make him king of Palestine right then and there. And that's not what's happening here. Jesus has far more in mind. He's going far, far deeper than that. And it looks, you see that like, he's being praised, right? He comes in, they're, they're waving the branches, they're, they're making the red carpet for him, they're, they're crying out, Psalms 118 and 2 Samuel 7, Hosanna, blessed is he, Hosanna. And he was being praised. Make no mistake, he is, he is king of the whole cosmos. Nothing has been made that was not made through the person of the Son of God, incarnate Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is our King Jesus, but his praise in that moment was not the culmination of his ministry. This wasn't the consummation of his kingdom. He actually isn't riding into Jerusalem to be crowned. He's riding into Jerusalem to be killed, but the people are praising him all all the same, and and they are right to do so, because even Jesus himself says in Luke's accounts of this, The Pharisees get all bent out of shape, and they say, Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what, if they remain silent, the rocks themselves will cry out. Jesus is to be praised, but this is not the consummation of his ministry. He's not going to receive a crown here in Jerusalem. He's going to receive a cross because he has more in mind than an earthly kingdom. He has eternity in mind all the time. And so he comes into Jerusalem, and what we, what we miss what we miss here, and what we pick up on, this is why there's four gospels, because they all inform us more of more and more of the story. They don't contradict one another, they support one another with all these different details and vantage points from different authors. And what we learn in, John, in, in John's accounts of this is that part of what really bolstered Jesus and part of what makes this event so crazy is that... Jesus was at, was literally an outlaw at this point. In John chapter eleven, if I may, just indulge me. Follow me. We're going someplace with this. We're going to who Jesus is and what he's doing. In John chapter eleven, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Miracle of miracles. Lazarus had been dead in the tomb for four days. They had a suspicion back then that a body could resuscitate. It wasn't really a resurrection; it was a resuscitation. Well, the four days put that just flattened all four of the tires there. This is not a resuscitation this is a bona fide resurrection jesus has authority and power over death lazarus proof and it tempered and solidified the faith of many this miraculous resurrection of lazarus from the dead but it also tempered the hatred of his enemies And if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, there's many times that people just kind of on the fly, heat of the moment, impetuously try to apprehend him and kill him, either by stoning him or throwing him off a cliff, but it's never premeditated. It's just sort of this like, oh, snap, he said something we don't like, let's kill him. But he always gets out of it. But with the resurrection of Lazarus, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and everybody in authority came together and they said, all right, that's enough. No more of this impetuous mob violence. We're going to get organized, we're going to bring this guy down, we're going to arrest him. He is an outlaw. He is the ultimate gangster of love because that's all Jesus ever did was love people and his enemies hated him for it. And so they sought to actually have him arrested. Jesus becomes a bona fide legitimate outlaw. There are people that are looking for him to arrest him and and, and the scriptures tell us that the word went out from the authorities and they said if you know where he is you have to tell us or We're coming for you too. So now Jesus is is such a wanted man that if you know where he is and you keep quiet about it, you're an accessory to a crime aiding and abetting a criminal and you you can have legal action taken against you as well. And so being a wanted man, being an outlaw, these guys actually organizing a posse to arrest him he then gets on a donkey and rides into the New York City of Palestine with thousands and thousands of people waving palm branches and putting out the the red carpet of, of jackets and cloaks and everything else. And now everybody knows. You don't have to tell us. There he is. Why does he do that? This is why what seems to be happening is not happening. Jesus doesn't have that in mind. He's a wanted man going into a big city with thousands and thousands of people pointing to the authorities saying, there he is. Even if they're not doing it on purpose, there he is. Why is he doing this? May I make one more point before we move forward? The reason why I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna beat this is because if you don't hear me say anything today, hear this. Trust Jesus, trust him. He may not do anything that makes sense to you, with your logic, with your finite thinking, with your limited ex- experience on, on life, of existence, of, of, of what human flourishing is all about, if you, we don't get it, and if Jesus is moving in a way that you think is contrary to that, be at peace, he's been doing it since day one. Trust him, he's good, he is kind, things are not out of control, they may feel like it, they may, they may seem like it, you may look around and go, there's no way that this is not in any sort of control. Trust Jesus. He is good. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. And this story here is proof because he does something. When you take all the gospel accounts into, into consideration, he does something that makes our logic go pro. Fumble, dude. In John chapter seven, his brothers, before he's a wanted man, his brother's like, Jesus, go to Jerusalem. You've got these miraculous powers. You've got this, this group of hood rats following you around, these ragamuffin fishermen and tax collectors. If you wanna really make an impact, if you wanna really be big time, go to Jerusalem and do these miracles. Nobody's gonna do what they're doing in secret if they wanna be seen, right? So get out of Galilee and go south to Jerusalem and make a name for yourself. And Jesus says, no. I'm not gonna do that because his brothers had in mind the kingdom here and now, the culmination of Jesus' ministry being some sort of political empire that boots the Romans out of power. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I have in mind. And he does, in John 7, he does eventually go into Jerusalem, but he does it with his hoodie pulled over his eyes and his head down in obscurity. He goes there quietly. But now that he's a wanted man, now that there's a legitimate posse after him, he's gonna go in the way that his brothers basically told him to. Go in with for the fanfare. You want people waving palm branches and laying down their jackets as you come in on your valiant deed? Like, come on, man. Like, what are you doing? You cannot read the gospels and not at some point realize, like, what are you doing? <laughs> Now that you're a wanted man, like you're gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna produce some kingdom here when there's people that actually want you dead. Jesus is no, he's not silly. He knows what's up. Friends, trust him. He's got more in mind and more in store than we could possibly imagine. And sometimes, I know what it's like to look around in your life and go, faith. We have to trust Jesus' wisdom and trust that he's good and trust that he has a heart that loves you. I think we doubt that a lot, don't we? We look at Ukraine, and we look at COVID, and we look at just everyday just maladies that take place, tragedies that take place on the the global scale and just on the local scale. Shootings and addictions and overdoses and fill in the blank. And we can look up at God and go, this doesn't make any sense. If you don't hear anything else that I say today, hear this. Trust Jesus. He's Worthy of your trust. He's trustworthy. Jesus comes in on this this donkey. When he knows that he's a wanted man, he knows that it it could turn out bad for him. He knows that it's going to turn out bad for him. But he sets his face like flint and he goes there anyways. And long before Jesus came on the scene, Isaiah wrote about this in Isaiah chapter 50. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 50 starting in verse six. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from dishonor and spitting. Even now the Lord Yahweh helps me and therefore I am not dishonored. Therefore I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed jesus knew what he was doing he knew that going into jerusalem was going to get him killed it's why he came he's not in jerusalem seeking a crown he is there on his way to golgotha torture and the cross and he knows it and so this doesn't make any sense to us it looks like a coronation and in one way it most certainly is but it is a coronation that is far greater And far deeper than anything that we could ever imagine. And so this defies our logic. These people wanted an earthly king to give them reprieve from earthly troubles. And Jesus has eternity in mind. They want to be saved from Rome. He's going to save them from sin. They want to be saved from oppression of taxes. He's going to save them from hell. He's going to offer his body on the cross to be beaten and broken he's going to shed his blood, and he's going to die because sin brings death. And Jesus took that punishment that we deserve for our sin. We put him there. And it's in his love that he came to take that punishment, was buried in a real tomb, in a real time, in a real place in history, and actually had a a real resurrection and that life that is overqualified for death, that perfect righteousness that he has because he never sinned in word, thought, or deed, not for a moment, that is given to us and that is what he has in mind here. This is Passover week and he is in his, he is in route to Jerusalem during Passover week to be the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate exodus. Not, not exodus from slavery, not exodus from, from trial and from pain in this life, but exodus from death itself. Exodus from punishment, exodus from being separated from God. And he comes in on a, he comes in on a donkey. And I, I uh, sometimes I get a little mad. There's people that are like, oh, Jesus is, okay. What's he doing here? I, did he not think ahead that he's gonna need a donkey? He sends two of his cronies out there to go get a donkey because he didn't think about the fact that he needed to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. There's people that, that actually try to poke at the person of our risen savior because they don't understand that Jesus seemingly on, a, on the fly was just like, boys, there's a donkey that's waiting, go get him. It's far deeper than that. It's far deeper than that. This is amazing. First of all, it is, it is, a, it is a fulfillment of prophecy, this this scripture that's used here in, in in chapter four, or excuse me, in verse four, it says, "And this took place, in order that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled." Say to the, Zod- the daughter of Zion, "Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, on the foal of a pack animal." Again, it was that was Zechariah nine nine. It was it was. Preordained, it was planned that Jesus would ride in on a donkey long before he actually did. He didn't just think of it on the fly. Oh, I need a donkey to get into Jerusalem. Be real. He walked in and out of Jerusalem so many times, nobody even knows the count. He didn't need that donkey. But he's showing us something about the donkey. He rides a donkey into Passover weekend. Is that an accident? Friends, it's amazing how much nothing is an accident. It's amazing how nothing is happenstance. During the institution of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Passover, which is being celebrated here in, in this chapter in Matthew 21, going back all the way to Exodus, when the rules of the feast were being, were being laid out, listen to this, the celebration of Passover would be this. So. The rules are, are beginning with this: it says, unleavened bread shall be eaten, shall shall not be eat. unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days of the festival. Nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among in all your borders. And so you'll say to your son in that day, the reason why this is happening, you'll say to your son in that day, it is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it will be assigned to you on your hand. And as a memorial between your eyes, remember. As a memorial between your eyes, remember what Yahweh did at the Passover. And then it gets real interesting. Verse, verse 13 says this. And the very first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. That means that the, the, the first male donkey born, you sacrifice a lamb for that donkey. And if you don't, it says, it goes on to say that you shall break the donkey's neck. Now, this is one of those strange enigmatic passages that if you just take it out like it's a fortune cookie, you go, what is that? Our, our, our friends that don't believe the same thing that we believe point at stuff like this, and they're like, come on, man. This is why I don't like the Old Testament. What is up with the lamb and the donkey? Well, again, God the Spirit wrote this book, and he knew that people might ask that question, so he puts the answer right in verse 14. So you shall break the neck and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall then redeem. And it will be when your sons ask you in the time to come saying, what is this? Fair enough, good question. What is this? Mom, dad, why are we killing a lamb for the firstborn donkey? And why does the donkey have to die if there is no lamb? Because friends, sin brings death. It's a sad reality, but it's, the, it's a true, true statement. Sin brings death, and this is is meant to push us again and again and again to remembering the Passover. When your son or daughter asks you this, this is what you will say to them. With a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it happened when, when Pharaoh had hardened his heart with stiffness about letting us go. Yahweh killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. And therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males, the firstborn offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I will redeem. So this will be a sign on your hand and as a phylactery between your eyes, for with a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. Again, remember Passover. Between your eyes, remember what happened. At Passover the Lord brought Egypt out of slavery and Pharaoh hardened his heart again and again and again and again and finally the Exodus chapter 12 just one chapter over Yahweh said okay this is gonna be the sign The the firstborn are going to die because sin brings death the firstborn are going to die but Israelites here's how you get out of that you kill the lamb you sacrifice the lamb Sin brings death, something has to be punished. The lambs faced that punishment, and the blood was put on the doorposts. And death passed over every house that had the blood on their doorposts. They were passed over because they were covered in the blood, so to speak. And here. <laughs> All this time later, Jesus is riding a donkey, this animal that reminds us of the Passover into Passover week, into Jerusalem to be the ultimate Passover lamb. There's this really strange statement that John the Baptist makes about Jesus. If you'll recall, early in the Gospel of John, chapter one, verse 29, John the Baptist looks at Jesus, points at him and says, "'Behold, the Lamb of God "'who takes away the sins of the world, and then the story just kind of goes on. And if you don't know, you're like, well, what's that mean? It means this. There were, there were lambs that were killed at Passover. There were, first, there were firstborn that were, that were killed in Egypt because sin brings death. And God so sought in his wisdom and in his, in his love for us to satisfy the punishment of death once and for all by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be punished, to be the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins, not of Israel, not of Rome or of Egypt, but of the whole world, every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. This is what he has in mind. What's what's not happening? Jesus is not taking a crown in Jerusalem here. He's going to the cross. What is happening? He is the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate exodus out of out of slavery, out of bondage, not the slavery of Rome or the bondage of Egypt, but the slavery of death and the bondage that comes with everything that death brings, the uncertainty of life. He comes to show us what he's like. Is, is there a God in the universe? Does God exist? And if he does, what is he like? Here's our answer. He very much does exist. He knows how many hairs are on your head. And thousands and thousands and thousands of years before you were ever born, he so loved the world that he sent his only son to die so that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Exodus from death. Scripture teaches us that death was devoured by the cross. What am I for? What is my life about? What happens if my dreams don't come true? What happens if I get sick? What happens if a relative gets sick? What happens if I don't have that family I wanted, that job I wanted, that career? What happens if I die young and don't get to live? Jesus puts all of that to bed for us because he's trustworthy. He secures our eternity with his own blood and asks us, repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in him. What these people were hoping Jesus would be in their city, what they were hoping he would do with Rome, he does that with your eternity. He defeats death, and he provides for you a home that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading with him and with each other forever. And our job here is to spread that gospel news. Jesus is coming here to do far more than these people could ever imagine. They just And they, they, these people just don't get it. They don't get it. Notice this, so in, in verse 11, well, verse 10, excuse me, of Matthew 21. And so he comes in, he's, he's entered Jerusalem, and all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Kind of, sure. Uh, Mark's, Mark's account of this also uh, ends in a way that kind of feels anti Same same story. You can find it in Matthew eleven one through eleven. Verse eleven says this: "And Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late." Again, it seems like on the surface, <laughs> on the surface, it's just Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. He was a local. He was a carpenter. People knew who he was, but he was so much more. He was coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they were praising him as king of that time, but he was so much more. They thought that he was going to overthrow the Romans. He came to do so much more. He is so much more, and his entrance into the temple here is so much more than what it seems like, than what it looks like, what it feels like. Ezekiel tells us in chapter 11, turn there real quick. Ezekiel tells us in chapter 11, Ezekiel describes the glory of God actually coming up out of the temple and leaving. In verse 23, the glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and he stood over the, stood over the mountain, which is to the east of the city. The glory of God left the temple. And the, the temple was where you were supposed to go to experience the the glory of God. That's why there was the outer courts and then the inner courts, which was the holy place. And then behind the veil was the most holy of holy places. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where God's presence was fully. And Ezekiel, he's describing God's presence leaving the temple and going away. But here in Matthew 21, the glory of God comes back into the temple. Far deeper than meets the eye, far more profound then we understand, we can apprehend some level of this, but there's a depth to which we will never get this. But he condescended and he did this for us because he came into the temple not to reinstate the temple, he came to make the temple obsolete. He came, the glory of God, the word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came down fully, truly God and truly man, and experienced human suffering tempted in all the ways that we are tempted and yet without sin and he did it for us The glory of God in human form come to seek and to save that which is lost. Everything that Jesus said and did was a manifestation of the Father. He says in John 14, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And what he means by that is the clearest and most explicit communication of who God is, what he's like, what he thinks, what he does, how he feels about you is seen and personified perfectly in Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say? He says, do not not prevent the children from coming to me. Any who come to me, I will never cast out, he says. This gives us hope and buoyancy and assurance that is beyond our circumstance. And I'm afraid that we look at our circumstance, we look at the empires of Rome and Egypt and whatever else, and we forget that God loves us. Because we look at our circumstances, we do not look at him. And the best way to look at him is to prayerfully and even communally engage the scriptures, come to know who God is through his word repent of your sins, come to know Jesus, put your faith and your trust in him for your eternity. He comes and he makes the temple obsolete because it has ascended, he said just before his death, he said that he would send the spirit to earth to be with us. And now read this crazy, wild text, wild, wild text. We're told that the veil was torn at the death of Jesus and what that was symbolizing is that that division between us and almighty Yahweh is gone. Repent of your sins. Put your faith and your trust in the person Jesus Christ. He lives today. And even in the midst of turmoil here, we have joy and we have peace because everything is working for the good and there's an eternity that cannot be taken away from us. And the sending of the spirit, we're told in Ephesians, is a guarantee of that inheritance until we actually take possession of it. The barrier between God and us is destroyed first Corinthians three sixteen. do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you this is what sanctification is this is what abiding in Jesus is we do increasingly grow more and more and more out of our bad habits and more and more into the likeness of who Christ is and in becoming more like him he has Millions and maybe billions of people on planet earth that are that are alive with his spirit being salt and light to the world around us Proclaiming the gospel to people who are terrified by what is my life for what am I about what happens when I die? What's with the what's with evil and suffering? Jesus gives us answers to all of that and We are his agents to proclaim that and if you're here this morning, and you do not know Jesus He's available to you right now. Repent of your sins. Repent of your autonomy. Put your faith and your trust for all of eternity in him. You cannot out Jesus. His blood is too potent. No one is too dirty. No one is too awful or wrong or mixed up or messed up for Jesus. If you are, he actually had a reputation. For those of you who may not know, he was criticized by the religious leaders of the time because they're like, oh, that Jesus guy, he's a, he's a drunk. He's a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes, and he's a glutton. If you struggle with any of those things, you're Jesus' type. He was not those things. He was accused of those things, but he was a friend to people like me, sitting with a bourbon bottle and a pack of, I don't know, Xanax and some menthols. And Jesus met, Jesus, Jesus saved me. And I continue to repent and to grow in knowledge and love and affection for him, and that's available now and eternity is secure. Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, this animal of the Passover, to remind people of the Passover to be the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate exodus from death. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is a God, and this is what he's like, he's humble. He comes in not on a war horse, he comes in not on, on on a big black horse with a star on its chest like Napoleon, and like Alexander the Great, He comes in on a donkey to symbolize that he is a king of peace. He came in to be a sacrifice, not to to cause other people to be sacrifices. He came in to die for us. He took that punishment so that we would never have to. That's what this means. He's humble. He's gentle. Philippians 2, 5 through 9 says this. We'll close out with this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. These people were praising him, thinking that he was king of the land. And he is king. But he's king of far more than just Palestine. The verse goes on to say, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How much can you trust him? How much does he love you? That, that's it he humbled himself all the way to the point of death even death on a cross a disgraceful way to die in that day and age that was a symbol dying on a cross meant something to that culture people would walk by people dying on a cross and they would spit because this is the lowest of, of, the, of the human species and Jesus died on a cross humbling himself so that we could be elevated, so that we could be brought into eternal life. He did that for us. What is God like? He's like that, he loves you that much. So therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus is Lord, he is king of the universe, he is trustworthy, he is kind, he is gentle. And there is no other name under heaven by which men and women must be saved. Jesus is that good. His blood is that potent. His life is that precious. Put your faith and trust in him and have salvation today. Amen? Amen. Amen. bow your heads with me as we, as we pray. Jesus, thank you for your condescension. Thank you for your life. You came knowing that it would cost you your life. You walked or you rode into Jerusalem that day confounding us and confusing us, we not understanding what was going on, but you came knowing that it would cost you your life. You were in control. You said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You did that for us. I pray, Jesus, that you would inspire your people, that, you would, that people would be melted by your love, that, people would, that their hearts would be changed by your love, and that in that heart change, in that repentance, in realizing who it is who you really are, that they would love you, that they would trust you. And come what may in this life, nothing will shake their faith in who you are eternally and immutable, kind and loving, and that there is no life apart from you and that rejection of you, there is nothing left. There is only hell and punishment. Thank you for taking the punishment for us and thank you for the life and the righteousness that you give that is yours as if it was, as if it was ours, you give it to us so that we might be pure and blameless and above reproach by the blood of Jesus. Thank you for all these things. Be with every heart here this morning. Convert, convict, comfort, We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, friends. This is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to doorofhopepdx.org and click give from the menu bar. May God bless you.